studying from Psalms 29 and 32 today. Um, I guess it was yeah two weeks ago, uh, Neil taught the class, and you remember uh, we've had a couple of uh, um, breaks, but for the quarter we're going through the um, book of Psalm, 13 weeks and a quarter, minus two or three that we've had other speakers. Um, let's say that gives you 10, that means 15 Psalms per Sunday. And that, of course, is not going to happen. Uh, So it's selected psalms. And when Neil asked me to cover uh, today, he gave me his information on kind of what the lesson plan was. And if you remember from two weeks ago, uh, the handout that he gave us, uh, we covered, um, I I believe, two or three psalms, including Psalms 22. And Psalms 23 was also on that outline. However... We are not going to cover that uh, beloved Psalms 23 today for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, when I started preparing this lesson probably two weeks ago, maybe two and a half weeks ago, uh, I gave some thought to that, and then I thought, well, Neil kind of wanted to cover that, and I didn't want to steal his thunder. He's got more thunder than uh, than I do. Um, And then secondly, uh, I'm being a little presumptuous, but I'm thinking that Psalms 23 is perhaps a whole lot better known than some of the other psalms. And so I chose to say, well, okay, let's look at a couple of others uh, that to me at least were not as well known. And I locked in on initially three of them, and as I prepared the material, I thought, I I, I don't want to fly through the material like I sometimes do. Uh, And so I, I narrowed it down to two psalms, 29 and 32. Uh, and I'm going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. I'm going to take the liberty to get us started by uh, reading Psalms 29. And ordinarily in this class, when we're <clears throat> condensed, you know, I'm, I'm, th- this is the two classes combined, and I, I don't have a knit shirt buttoned at the collar, so I'm not Hiram, and I don't have on cowboy boots and spurs, so I'm not Neil. Um, so the classes are combined. Uh, and uh, since we're all spread out, if I ask somebody else to read, um, probably some of us would not be able to hear you. Uh, so I'm going to take the liberty to read Psalms 29 uh, to get us started. So if you will, open your Bible to Psalms 29, and I will be reading from um, the, the New King James Version. Uh, David writes, Given to the Lord, O you mighty ones, given to the Lord glory and strength, given to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. And the Lord sets his king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. 
the Lord will bless His people with peace. I was introduced to a word when I started this preparation uh, that I did not know. Um, and, and so I'm going to introduce that word to you first. It's anthropomorphism. And that word is on your outline. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. Does anybody know what that word means? Andrew, help us out. Absolutely. It's an attribute. If you didn't hear Andy well, it's an attribute uh, of a human characteristic that is attributed to God. Uh, and uh, so quickly, uh, let's ask this question. If I can figure out how to use this. What is this uh, attribute here? Quickly. Say it again. Voice. The voice. Yeah, the voice of God. Yes. Um, in fact, that's mentioned, I believe it's uh, seven times in the 11 verses. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. God has a voice. God has a voice, and it's expressed here. And this is not the only place in the Bible where a human attribute is um, uh, spoken of as God having it. There are many others. And I was somewhat um, stunned by how many times that, that appeared. And I did a little research and tried to figure that out. And I kept um, stumbling around, if you will, because it, it, it's all throughout the Scriptures. And I point out on your outline some of those places. And I've got them right here on, on your text. I cannot see back there. so I'm... Okay, all right. Uh, let's look at some of these. Now, you, can, you can follow along if you want to. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to try to read some of these texts uh, that I've mentioned here. first one on your outline, I believe, is Psalms 34.15. I think I've got these in order. Psalms 34.15, probably the next page in your Bible. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry. Psalm 75.8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. If you read the context of 75, Psalm 75, uh, you read that that's not a cup of blessing, but a cup of wrath. In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup of wrath. Uh, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 51.9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And then one that I do not have up there uh, is Exodus 15.6. And if you're a good Bible student, you can get the context in your head pretty quickly. Uh, this was spoken uh, by Moses in what we refer to as the Song of Moses. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. What's the context that, that Moses uh, sings that song? What's the context? What's just happened? I heard it. Say it a little louder. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, immediately after the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses lifts that song up to God. So here you not only have this, this word or phrase used to describe God, there's an illustration that accompanies it. Um, uh, Moses recognized 
that it was God who got them across uh, the sea. The voice of the Lord is repeated seven times in these 11 verses. And if you read it carefully, the other four verses are really in context. So it's in the same sentence or it flows with the rest of it. Uh, So we do see it repeated a number of times. Well, let's ask ourselves. What makes that voice so noticeable? How do we, how do we, and we're supposed to be spiritually minded people, how do we recognize that the voice of God is out there? How do we hear the voice of God? What does the text say here? It gives one phrase or one idea of what? Nature. Nature, Nature? yeah, I'll agree with that. Nature, but especially in one respect. Think of, Think of uh, peals of thunder. Now, I, just this last week, one night, maybe Wednesday or Thursday night, uh, Joyce and I heard some pretty powerful thunder. I, I wouldn't call it peals of thunder. We heard thunder a number of times, but most of us have heard the thunder kind of rolling. It seems to be rolling in from somewhere. Well, the uh, commentary writers say that at this time, when David uh, scratched out this psalm through inspiration, he probably was sitting on the coastline, and a thunderstorm probably was rolling in. David knew that all of the foreigners of the land, the Canaanites, had a special god for the god of thunder. Uh, And David, it seems, in a somewhat subtle way, wants to point out uh, that that voice that you hear is not your god, but it's my god. Uh, And and he does it in a poetic uh, way, and he does it Uh, very, very well. And he does it over and over uh, again in this particular psalm. But also, we hear that voice because as he says uh, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 2, the first verse, first two verses, he says, ascribe to the Lord, O O heavenly beings. Who's he talking about? Who are the heavenly beings? Easy answer. Who is it? The angels, yeah. He's, telling, he's saying to the angels, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to him glory and strength. So he's saying that even the heavenly beings recognize the voice of God. And then he ends by saying, um, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood uh, at the time of David. What was the greatest natural disaster that had ever happened? Noah's flood, yeah, the, the, the great flood. Now, when we think of natural disasters today, we think of many, including the one that uh, journeyed through um, uh, Bowling Green nearly two years ago, three years ago, I guess. Is that right? Was that 2000 that we had the tornado? Was it? Is that right? I don't remember what it was. Okay, anyhow. Um, we know what natural disasters are. David knew what natural disasters were. And he speaks of God being enthroned over the flood, which to him was the greatest force of nature uh, that he had ever seen or that anybody at that time had ever seen. Um, What word and what phrase are particularly descriptive of his voice? He uses, I think it's in verse um, four, I believe. What word do you see there that's particularly descriptive of his voice? Powerful, yeah. And then the next line, what's the phrase that's used? 
full of majesty, yet full of majesty, meaning there's a royal significance to the voice of the God. We hear his voice when the thunder peals, and it uh, is full of majesty. Go on a little bit further. What uh, action words or phrases tell us what the God does with his voice? I see about uh, maybe five action words there. Uh, tell me what they are. The Lord does what first? That's in uh, verse uh, 5. Breaks. Yeah, he breaks the cedars. Cedar, of course, being symbolic of uh, uh, strength. Uh, and then further on, he breaks the cedars or splinters the cedars. Uh, uh, cedars, I believe uh, D. King James says. He splinters the cedars of Lebanon. Um, he breaks. He see, uh, splinters. And then he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. And Sirion, Sirion, I believe, was a, uh, another name for uh, Mount Her- uh, Hebron. And then in verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. One translation says, another one says, divides the flames of fire. And I tried to picture in my mind's eye a, a torrential fire, be that a forest fire or something smaller than that. And I tried to uh, ask myself, what would it take to divide that, that fire? Uh, how could that be done? Now, granted, uh, we have some incredibly talented uh, uh, firefighters with uh, incredibly good tools, uh, but to envision a massive fire, and God is able with his voice to divide the flames of fire. And that's what uh, David poetically says uh, that God does. He breaks, he splinters, he divides, he shakes, and he makes. Let's move on just a little bit. Uh, tell me, what should man's response be uh, to non-believers who assert that we, that's us, you and me, cannot hear the voice of God? What should that response be? Now, let's look at it this way. If we take a, whether they're cynical or not, let's take a non-believer. And I tell them that in many acts of nature, uh, I can hear the voice of God. What's the response I'm going to get back, especially if they're cynical? What are they going to say? What are they going to say? What are they going to say about me? I am nuts. Yeah, I'm crazy. Yeah, I'm crazy. Uh, and And... I can't, uh, I can't take them somewhere and, and, uh, uh, and ask God to speak. Uh, God spoke to his people in times of old. That's covered throughout the Old Testament a number of places. God uh, spoke uh, to uh, chosen uh, folks um, uh, early in, in the New Testament writings. Uh, we have several accounts of that in the Gospel accounts. However... Uh, God has also told us that he's no longer going to speak to us directly because he's spoken to us directly through his word and through the things that Jesus did for us. So we're not going to hear the voice of God physically like some people heard it in times of old. However, uh, we can um, show people that we understand this is attributable to the voice of God, those acts of nature. And so our reaction should be one of reverence, uh, total reverence, <clears throat> not periodic reverence, uh, reverence regardless of the circumstances. And we should also 
properly submit to God and we should worship him properly. Uh, and those kind of flow. If we have the reverence that we should, then we will choose to worship God properly and uh, simultaneous with that, we will choose to submit ourselves to God. God compels us to do uh, just that. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, That's Romans word. Romans 1 verse 19 has a a critical um, uh, statement there about the voice of God. And also, uh, here's one that I found also in Romans. um, Again, it's Paul writing uh, to the Romans. I believe it's Romans. uh, Give me a minute and I'll find it. Or not. Um. Paul says it in a number of places in Romans. I'm sorry I can't find it. I can't read my small print. Uh, But we do find in the New Testament references that will throw back to the Old Testament, including some references that go back and pick up uh, uh, the Psalms uh, and what David has already said about uh, uh, the voice of God. Okay, what are the lessons for us? In these 11 short verses, before we move on, what are the lessons for us? Well, here's two that I come up with. Uh, We should, first of all, praise God for who he is and what he has done for us. Excuse me, Dad, thank you. Sneak up on me. Thank you, Russell. Uh, Praise God for who he is and what he has done. David makes that clear. He does that himself. Uh, and if we try to as comprehensively as comprehensively as we can understand all that God has done and, of course, all that he is, uh, then that brings forth from us nothing but praise and admiration and reverence and the desire to worship and properly submit to him. That's one lesson that stands out to me here. And here's the other one. We must attribute to God or I'm sorry, ascribe to nobody but God um, the glory and strength uh, of the forces at work in the world. Uh, In other words, whatever else happens in the world, if it's viewed to be of some great glory or some massive force, um, let's don't assign anything to anybody except God. The Psalms are clear that God is all-powerful and he is in control of everything that we do. Uh, Everything that is done, I should say. Ascribe no strength or glory to other forces at work in the world. The great writer David opens that great psalm by telling us that we should ascribe to the Lord the glory and honor that he's due. And he ends it by saying that this greatest act of nature, God was in control of that. And then he closes that uh, the entire psalm by saying, He's enthroned forever as king, and he's in the position, because of all this, he's in the position, as he says in verse 11, to give strength to his people and to bless his people with peace. Um, David recognized that God was worthy of our praise. Okay, any questions on on Psalm 29? I want to go on to Psalm 32 and uh, cover some... It's a, I started to say it's a little longer. It's actually 11 verses as this is. <clears throat> but before we get into Psalms 32, and I'm going to read it instead of reading all of it, 
I'm going to read it uh, two or three verses at a time, and we'll go through that. But first, let me say this. I didn't do any kind of research to say, uh, well, how many of the Psalms, uh, directly or indirectly, have even the smallest reference to Christ? And we know that there are several of them. Uh, this is a Psalm, Psalm 32, the joy of forgiveness, that it seems to me does not intentionally or directly uh, refer to Christ as so many others do. It does not do that intentionally. But if you have a knowledge of Christ and if you put on the, 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 the lens and look back at all of the writings, of really all the writings of the Old Testament, and, and then when you focus in on Psalms 32, I think you can say, as I concluded, that even though when David wrote this psalm, he didn't seem to necessarily be making some prophetic statement about Christ's coming, but the things he said are almost like they were the first gospel sermon. And of course, we all know that that first gospel sermon recorded for us in Acts 2 was proclaimed uh, by Peter. And if you look at what Peter said in Acts 2, what's written about that gospel sermon, you see a number of things that David could not himself have said at the time he wrote this. But at the same time, uh, you see that David is sort of writing centuries before Peter spoke that first gospel sermon. David seems to be writing uh, what I would call a mini gospel sermon, a mini gospel sermon because of the things he said. Let's look at those first. Let's look at verses, if you're in Psalms 32, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So I ask you, um, what is that, that gospel grace? What is it? The pardon of sin. Our sins are covered according to David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiving. Uh, that's an important element of what Peter said in that first gospel sermon preached. It's an important element in all that Jesus said that are recorded in the Gospels. And that, of course, it uh, uh, flows through the various letters in the rest of the New Testament, even uh, in the, the great revelation of John. Um, the element of pardon of sin. But there's more. Let's look at some of the New Testament passages that convey this and convey it uh, quite well. Uh, and uh, most of these are, most of the ones I'm going to cover from here on out are, are familiar to you. You don't necessarily have to go to them. I'm going to read them or read excerpts from them. Um, but if you're uh, speedy fingers, you can find them and uh, read along with me. Acts 2.38, we all know that one. Uh, this is from that first gospel sermon that Peter preached. Repent and be baptized for the, what's the word? Forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. Right on the heels of that message. It's Peter again. This time accompanied by John as he probably was the first time as well. Acts 3.19 Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then from the pen of Paul. Ephesians 1 verse 7 In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches 
of his grace. So we have forgiveness of sins. We have sins blotted out. And Paul reinforces that idea by saying we have forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I think it's important um, to know that uh, it, it's a, uh, I guess, a mark of the integrity of the Bible uh, to know that the best characters of the Bible, of which David was surely one, had some low points, and those low points are not glossed over, and they're not omitted. And this psalm seems to have been written at about the same time as Psalm 51, when David was reeling from the uh, impact of his great sin against uh, Bathsheba, and against God, of course, and against Uriah as well. Uh, He was reeling. Uh, And we're all familiar with Psalms uh, 51, or or certainly should be. Uh, That is where David really pours out his heart in, in contriteness, and, and ask God to uh, overlook that and forgive him. Uh, this psalm uh, does the same thing, and it goes really to the, to the same extent, just approaches it a little differently. Uh, the Bible has integrity, and here are a number of verses that point that out to us. Okay, let's go on. Let's look at the uh, uh, next two uh, verses, three verses. Psalms uh, uh, 32, verses 3 through 5. Uh, David says, or writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you notice the uh, change the uh, uh, method in, in which this is written, those first couple of verses seem to me to be sort of David writing to whoever might read this later, and that would include you and me. But here in verses 3 through 5, uh, is that what he's doing? What's he doing? What, what, what pronoun do you see in there jumping out three or four times? What is it? You, you're, Right? He's talking directly to God. Uh, Look in verse 4. Your hand was heavy on me. I acknowledge my sin to you. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. So in the middle of writing this psalm, uh, which I would say is to a general audience, David seems to pause and says to God, you forgave me my transgressions. Um, David certainly had a relationship with, Uh, to God that allowed him uh, to speak and write of God. And here, the element then is what? What's he talking about? What's the element of the gospel message there? Confession, yeah. Confession. Our sins are covered through uh, confession. There are a number of New Testament passages that go over this, and you could uh, uh, look all day before you could find those. I wish I could see that screen back there. That really bothers me. Give me a second, please. Okay. Let me go back and mention that one right there. Uh, I, I overlooked um, the, the passages uh, in, in which 
David talked about confession. Um, Matthew 10, 32. Let's see if I can find that. Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges or confesses, acknowledge, confess, they're synonymous. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge uh, before my Father is in heaven. And then uh, even more familiar, Romans 10, 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, our sins are covered, but now let me go on and see if I can focus on that. Our sins are also consuming. Um, There are a number of uh, verses that talk about this. I want to look at um, John 8, 34. Uh, And and as you might uh, guess uh, easily, John 8, uh, that's the language of Jesus or the Jesus speaking. Jesus is having one of those confrontations with his critics and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Practices sin. That sounds like it's something that you do over and over and over again. And he says they become a slave to sin. In um, that gener- generations ago, when, when we when slavery was legal in this country, and it's still legal in some other countries, I'm sure it certainly was at the time. David penned this psalm. It was also legal at the time Jesus walked on earth. So people knew something, especially if they were slaves, they knew something about that. That fact consumed them. They couldn't escape the fact that they were slaves. And uh, the analogy that's used here is that that, uh, David is saying that that when you practice sin over and over and over again, it consumes you just like being a slave to sin. And that very idea, of course, is expressed in the New Testament as well. Uh, We are slaves to sin. Uh, Paul said to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You can't escape things when you're dead. Uh, And by grace, through faith, though, we do escape that burden of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. I think... David understood this and understood it uh, well. Let's move on to uh, verses, um, uh, verse 6. 6 through uh, 7, 6 and 7. Uh, David says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Go back to what I said earlier. David is still talking to God. Offer a prayer to you when you can be found. You are a hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. That's one way to polish your shoes. Um, Sorry about that. Okay, David uh, understood this very well because he himself had been tormented by Saul uh, perhaps a long time before he wrote this, but he knew what being tormented was. He knew that he needed a place to hide. 
He knew that God preserved him. He knew that God uh, delivered him. Uh, and what's that, uh, what's that message that he's given us right there? How is that done? Or what's one way that that's done? What is that element of, of the gospel message that David is referring to here? Therefore, let everyone who is godly do what? Offer prayer. Yeah, prayer. Yes, yes. Uh, David says the flood of great waters are not even going to overcome you. And, and maybe he's thinking about or referring back uh, to the flood. If somebody was in the right relationship with God, as those people on that big boat were, uh, then the flood of those mighty waters did not reach him, uh, reach uh, those people. Uh, let's look at uh, a few verses. And here, is, uh, praying helps us avoid being consumed by sin. And then here's some New Testament uh, passages that, that I want us to dwell on now because so much is offered by these and others. Uh, if you go back to your um, the back end of your Bible and do a little research on prayer and praying, you're going to find lots of references uh, as I did and I picked out three or four uh, that I, I, I wanted to use that I thought fit what David is saying better than anything else. Uh, Matthew 21, 22, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you what? If you have faith. If you have faith. Philippians 4, verse 6, um, Paul again, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, do what? Let your requests be made known to God. And then Paul again, Colossians 4, 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Uh, being watchful uh, with thanksgiving, James 5, 16, another one that we know pretty well, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you look at all these put together, and others fit into this as well, here's five things we learned about prayer. And David, from what he is saying in just these two short verses, here 6 and 7, he's saying that the success of prayer hinges on one's faith, don't be bashful in our request to God. Praying should not be infrequent. And let's not be selfish in our prayers. Um, but pray for others as, as well as lifting our own prayers, our own request to God. And last, righteous living has as a result powerful and effective prayers. David understood this. But David also understood something else. Nice. David understood the idea of divine protection because he himself had been a beneficiary of divine uh, protection. He understood that uh, better perhaps than anybody else. There are a number of verses in both the Old and New Testament uh, that bring this up. And in these, maybe as much or more than some of these others, but as I studied this uh, the last couple of days, I kept, when I went through this, I kept thinking of songs. And I'm not a song leader, and I don't know the songs in our songbook as well as a whole lot of you do. Uh, but on a couple of occasions, I nearly broke out in song because I was reminded of a phrase or a verse or an idea that's expressed in some of the songs we sing. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. The you being God, of course. Proverbs 29, 25. 
whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Romans 8.31. Everybody knows this one. At least most of us do. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You have divine protection. And then lastly, uh, Paul again, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Uh, David understood divine protection. But in that, uh, we read in 32 and 51 and elsewhere, uh, David was contrite. Contriteness is important uh, in order that we um, um, achieve what we want to in prayer. We can't uh, go to God in prayer if we ourselves have not humbled ourselves and, and gone with the right spirit. Uh, from the pen of Paul, 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We can't be grieving over our sins and the prospective consequences of those sins if we are less than contrite, as David was. You especially read that in Psalms 51. Uh, and then 1 Peter 5.5, 5, we've studied this recently, those of us that were in the uh, Monday night classes. Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, David understood these things better uh, than most of us do, and he helps us out here. Let's look at uh, verse 8 now. Um, in verse 8, uh, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Well, now, wait a minute. Earlier, we had a dramatic shift. David was speaking to people, and then he was speaking to God. Is there another dramatic shift here? Who, who, who's speaking here? Or who's writing here? David is, in effect, becoming a transcriber. Who, who, who's doing the speaking? God, yeah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Uh, David is saying that the Lord himself instructs and exhorts his people. Uh, given that idea, here's a gospel grace that, that, that I think uh, we, we need not overlook. Um, transgressions, transgressors, are commanded to learn. Uh, we can't be, um, we can't, learn what God expects of us uh, through osmosis. We can't sit in a room and, and expect to become um, skilled or even um, uh, modestly familiar with what God expects of us. He commands us to learn. Uh, one of the verses that illustrates this in the Old Testament is uh, uh, familiar to all of us that have ever studied the Old Testament. Um, in Joshua 1, 8, and this is uh, the Lord speaking to Joshua at the time when the torch has been passed from Moses to Joshua. And, and the Lord says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then... You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. All of us want good spiritual success. All of us want prosperity in our spiritual lives. All of us want to do according to what is written in the book. And to do that, 
God told Joshua, you need to meditate on the word. Um, that doesn't uh, uh, stop at the dawning of the age of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.15, another passage we're familiar with, do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved. Um, a worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then right at the onset of the great revelator's book, Blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. We have to understand. We have to learn. We're commanded to learn. All right, let's go on. And what have I got? Five minutes. Five minutes to figure it out. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 now. David writes, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. In verse 9, it will not stay with you. What is the it? What's the antecedent of that pronoun? Whatever we hear, our understanding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a horse has no understanding. A mule's dumb as mule. Uh, we know that. And David says, uh, if you want the understanding of the scriptures, if you want the understanding of what God has said to stay with you, uh, then uh, don't be like one of these stubborn animals. Um, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Here, I think the uh, message that he's telling us is that, that we can't uh, uh, be calloused about this. We've got to really understand what the Lord has said. Uh, there are lots of New Testament passages uh, that uh, uh, cover this or mention this. And I picked out two. I, I knew my time would be running short. I picked out more than two, but here's two that I'm going to dwell on. Uh, they're listed um, in your handout. Matthew 13, 15. From the, people's, uh, from, from the lips of Jesus. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Uh, Jesus is the great physician. That's one of the songs I thought about. But when he says here at the tail end of verse 15, and I would heal them. Is he talking about physical healing? Is that what he's talking about? He did a lot of that. Well, I I think not. I I think he's saying, uh, because of what he said earlier, their hearts are dull. They can barely hear. Uh, With their eyes, they can barely see because they got them closed. Uh, And so they don't understand. And so their heart uh, do not turn. And they don't come to me. And so I can't heal them spiritually uh, because they're not paying attention. Uh, And even if they have heard, uh, they have become uh, somewhat calloused. Uh, Paul again writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4. And he's speaking to what he refers to earlier in that text, the rest of the Gentiles, meaning the Gentiles uh, other than those that would have been in the Ephesian church. He says, they, those other Gentiles, have become callous 
and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what, what Paul is saying is uh, they're, they're calloused. Uh, it doesn't matter what Jesus is saying. It doesn't matter what all of the inspired writers have, have written. Uh, they've made up their own mind. And, and, and they're, they're, it's like they're hard-hearted. They're not going to hear any of this. It doesn't matter at all. Uh, David understood that, and he speaks of it. Again, I, I think this is uh, effectively uh, an early gospel sermon, even before the time of Christ. Uh, let's close with uh, verse 11 uh, now. Um, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Uh, here, I, I think what the writer is saying is uh, we have an obligation uh, to uh, understand uh, that we are called. We need to rejoice. We have to understand that God is saying, you've got to know me well enough that every fiber of your being is rejoicing all the time. Uh, my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Psalms 118-24. Uh, uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us do what? Rejoice and be glad in it. And then in uh, second, uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, a final thought before we close quickly. Two lessons I've got in this. We're all transgressors. We have to understand that. The transgressors of which David is writing here. That's all of us. And we don't need to forget that. And secondly, if we don't understand we're the transgressors, we're not going to confess. When we do confess, we must act accordingly. And then we too can experience the blessings that David writes about here. I'm sorry we went into double overtime, but that's all I got. Thank you very much.